sa la verità ma o ma o c'è chi riesce a sopportar ma o ma o sono tutti in guerra e non si sa che cosa mai succederà ma o ma o del mondo cosa ne sarà ma o ma o se tu lo sai dicelo un po' ma o ma o hello Welcome back. Welcome to the retooled format of two or three things. Two or three things I know the return. You didn't have to wait 25 years for this one. It's a new format. We're talking about three movies, a new format for us. We've never done this before. And we're talking about three movies done by the same director that we think are a thematic trilogy. A thing we obviously have never done before either. Three movies that are by a director who no one ever talks about. This little known indie filmmaker named David Lynch. Yeah, we're kind of sick of talking about big guys, so we decided to platform someone who no one ever has heard of yeah 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 the show you know has too many white men on it that's our bread and butter but then we had to do, oh david lynch is like oh well that i'm throwing all my notes out um could transitioning have saved him though that's a good question and i think the answer is i don't know maholland drive kind of belongs in the same camp as like bound as like a film that was probably received as like shockingly respectful of lesbian sexuality and i think we know what happened as a result of bound i know a lot of trans women like david lynch I think a lot of people like David Lynch. I think that's not a controversial opinion. Yeah, that's not uniquely a trans woman thing. It's just there are people who are trans women who like movies. And David Lynch is a pretty popular director among people who are into weird movies, for the lack of a better term. If I can begin the episode, what's like your backstory with David Lynch? What was the first David Lynch film you ever saw? I just randomly decided to watch Blue Velvet one day and I was like, this is really good. I'm honestly trying to remember. I think the first one I saw I have a fond memory. I had taken out a Blu-ray copy of the Coen Brothers' Burn After Reading. I watched the first, like, 40 minutes of it. I was like, this is fucking terrible. And I turned it off, and I had a copy of Mulholland Drive saved on my computer. I just watched it until, like, 3 in the morning, and I was just mesmerized by it. I stayed up until, like, 2 in the morning watching all three of these films, which was a very purposeful, calculated decision because uh, I wanted to get scared. When watching the films, when you live with your parents, and you're downstairs watching it on the television there's an added layer of fear and the knowledge that they could come down in the middle of the night and be like what the fuck are you doing see my dad hates david lynch your dad is a lynch hater okay which is one of the few places where our film opinions really diverge because i quite like david lynch i think he's a good filmmaker i like david lynch i think i've softened on him slightly as time has gone on i still think he's clearly probably one of the most sophisticated contemporary american filmmakers I adore Twin Peaks in particular, especially Firewalk With Me and especially The Return and Mulholland Drive, but we'll get into that. I think Lynch has such a distinctive chokehold on American contemporary film going because like if there's just like a whiff of there being like a new Lynch film, there's been multiple years in a row where there've been bullshit rumors that have been like a new Lynch film is coming out at Cannes this year. It would be really funny if one actually did come out at Cannes this year. It's not going to happen. It would be very funny if it did happen. I'm putting my mind here so you can clip this you can like bookmark this 
it, play this back, you'll be like, Gwen was right. Nothing happened. Inland Empire 2. I would be quite excited for Inland Empire 2. But yeah, I feel like Lynch is a broadly beloved figure. There remain some skeptics of Lynch out there. There remain some people that don't like his films. But I would say, by and large, the consensus is he is great. Two thumbs down, Siskel and Ebert. That's the first film we're talking about today. I think that represents like a cultural shift. The Siskel and Ebert kind of boomer types. But I think a lot like people younger than Siskel and Ebert, Lynch is just like a canonical figure. Like, Mulholland Drive is in the top 250 on the sight and sound list, and Lost Highway was, like, number 300 on the list. All these films that got kind of a critical beating, there is, like, a cult for them. And now, of course, two out of the three films have, within the past year, gotten a big restoration. And, I mean, Mulholland Drive has always had a big thing. Like, as far back as I can remember, like, being into film, which isn't that long, Mulholland Drive has been, like, in the Criterion collection and stuff. But now Lost Highway and Inland Empire are in there, and... And Inland Empire in particular is like finally available to purchase a physical copy of in America. Inland Empire, I remember for the longest time trying to get a hold of a DVD of it years and years ago. Oh, Gwen. And I just gave up and then I never watched it as a result of that because I wasn't into torrenting at this point in my life. Well, it played in theaters about a year ago. I didn't go see it. This was like 2016 because that's when I was like really obsessed with David Lynch. I should say I've read David Lynch's autobiography. It's not good. All I've really read in the lead up to this is the David Foster Wallace essay on Lost Highway. That's a good essay. That's good writing. I'm not like super into David Foster Wallace, but he's a good writer from what I've read of him, which is basically just his essay about Lost Highway. It's a good essay. I like the interview. It sort of talks about interviewing Lynch and all that. But yeah, Lost Highway, we should probably segue into, is the first film we're talking about. It comes out in 1997, which is... Sort of after the Twin Peaks boom, he does like Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart's a pretty fun film as well. I mean... I have mixed feelings about Wild at Heart. My gender and sexuality are kind of complicated, but when it comes to my opinions on Laura Dern, I'm a gay man. I'll say that much about Wild at Heart. I like Laura Dern in just about every movie she's in. She's amazing. Wild at Heart, which we are not talking about, is a film that I watch and I cringe and go, why didn't he keep doing episodes? That's my bitterness towards Wild at Heart. But then he does, after the end of Twin Peaks, he does Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Now a canonical classic in its own right. But people hated it when it came out because I don't know quite why people hated it. Like, genuinely. I think people hated it because the show was over. People were like, oh, this is going to solve the show, and then it didn't. Also, it is, like, a very downer film. Twin Peaks is, like, a funny show in a way that Firewalk With Me is. And Firewalk With Me is dirty and grimy and sad and weird in a way that kind of, in my mind, it follows through most of the post-Twin Peaks David Lynch stuff. I mean, David Lynch films are, like, sad. They're all sad, but I think you could draw a really fine line between post Twin Peaks, David Lynch, as being particularly different. That might be a strange argument. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I would actually say Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and Inland Empire in particular all kind of cycle back to Eraserhead, basically. So that's how I'd explain it. Inland Empire is the closest thing Lynch did to making Eraserhead again. It's like that it's just extremely free associative, horrifying in this very industrial way. The sort of, a lot of Lynch's films that have come out after have kind of had like genre trappings. And I guess you could say like, oh, like Inland Empire is kind of a horror film. It feels like the most unique 
I don't know how to explain this. It's the most art school film he made since Eraserhead. I just love Inland Empire so much. I think Inland Empire is my favorite of these three films, which that feels like a controversial statement to make because of how much people love Mulholland Drive. Yeah, I think people like all these films, so... People like all these films, but Mulholland Drive in particular is like sort of special, if that makes sense, to a lot of people. And I mean, it's a very good film. I will say, if you want me to be your opposition here, I think Mulholland Drive is better. Most people do. I'm not... The real oddball take would be that Lost Highway is the best one of the three, which I would love to have that opinion because I really like Nine Inch Nails, but... That's a heterosexual man opinion, probably. That's like a guy who listens to Nine Inch Nails and the Smashing Pumpkins opinion. I think a lot of people really like Lost Highway. Going purely by my music taste, Lost Highway should be my favorite because it's got a soundtrack that can best be described as cool white kid music. That's one way of putting it. I was listening to some of the songs off of the soundtrack and I was kind of like, wait, I don't like this movie particularly. The soundtrack kind of tricks you a little bit, at least tricks me. So yeah, Lost Highway, 1997, post all this other Twin Peaks shit and kind of making some like weird experimental things like you know David Lynch always does. He makes this film called Lost Highway. It's about Bill Pullman who is this jazz musician. Lost Highway is basically a movie about every single white dude who's really into jazz. They're all just exactly like this. They all just think about killing their wives constantly what I learned through this film. So basically the film is about Bill Pullman and his wife, played by Patricia Arquette, basically start getting these tapes in the mail that are just recordings of the inside of their house. The first one is just like the outside, the second one is on the inside, so like, oh, how did someone get in? I should also say like, before the first tape, he gets a knock on the door and what does the person say to him? Oh, I'm forgetting. Dick Laurent is dead. Dick Laurent is dead, thank you. Thank you. He gets this sort of cryptic message that this guy who he is, no clue who he is, died. So they kind of, you know, go about their sexy jazz life for a little bit. There's the famous bit with the mystery man, of course. With the guy who didn't he, like, kill someone in real life? Wait, is that true? I'm pretty sure that Robert Blake is a real-life murderer. Oh, shit. Blake's later career unraveled in what was called an O.J. Simpson-style case. Which is funny, because the film was inspired by the O.J. trial. Hate it when O.J. Simpson style stuff happens. In the interest of not being sued by Robert Blake, he was acquitted. He died like a month ago, so don't worry too much. But yeah, you got the mystery man. I think the much like memed scene in the film where he's like, I'm in your house right now. Call your house. It's a great scene. The film is kind of slow and you don't really know where it's going at first. I mean, that's like most of the Lynch movies, but the first bit is kind of like a fake out. They reel you in with the lie of Bill Pullman. And just when you're getting really into the Bill Pullman stuff, bring on Balthazar Getty. I like Balthazar Getty in the film. One thing I'll say with Bill Pullman in the film is the sequence that I think is the best bit in the whole entire film. A film I don't particularly care for, and we can get into that. But I think the best scene in the film is all the stuff with, like, the tapes, and particularly the last tape he gets where he sees himself killing his wife. I think that's very intelligent. The scene at the end in the desert is great. That might be my favorite part of Lost Highway is... The ending. It's a fantastic ending. It is probably, I think, the weakest in the trilogy, but I don't particularly dislike it. You know, I enjoy it. I'm a bit less high on it. And is it just that I think this because the other two films that follow it that I've seen 
before. I compare them to like Mulholland Drive and I go like, oh, this clearly isn't as good as Mulholland Drive. That's a fair take. And most of Lynch's stuff is about women. And this is about a man. Well, it's about a bunch of men. And I can see why that might not be as interesting as something like Mulholland Drive or Inland Empire. I feel like if I can kind of get at what I find sort of unsatisfactory about the film, what makes me feel really uncomfortable about it is when people get into these sort of diatribes about like, this film cannot possibly be misogynistic because, you know, it's actually just depicting what it feels like to be a man or whatever. And this is patriarchy. And like, I get that on some level, but I don't fully buy it. I think that's such a weak defense of the movie, in part because I think Lynch and many other filmmakers have made much better movies with the exact same conceptual setup. I think like, oh, it shows this weak patriarchal man reckoning with what he has done. And it's him trying to make excuses for killing his wife. And it's like, I guess. I mean, I don't know if it's so much excuses as just like, this is what happened. I don't think the film is pro-killing your wife. Yeah, I don't think it's pro-killing your wife either. I'm saying people would defend it probably as being like, this is a film about what men who want to kill their wives feel like. I feel like it's much less sympathetic to Bill Pullman than Mulholland Drive is to basically any of the women in the film or Inland Empire is to any of the women in the film. And these films are all really loosely structured in terms of plot. It's really funny though when you see like the credits for this film and you're like, oh, it's gonna have Richard Pryor in it. It's gonna have Henry Rollins in it when you're like seeing the opening and they're like in it for like five minutes each. Richard Pryor is great because like just enough time passes between the opening credits and the scene that he's in that you almost forget that his name was there and then he just shows up. And you're like, huh, that's Henry Rollins when he's like in, in prison. So yeah, Bill Pullman kills his wife, goes to jail as happens from time to time. And then he, while in prison, transforms into a different man named Pete. He transitions into Balthazar Getty. This is a trans mask story. But yeah, we have Balthazar Getty, who's this kind of like, I don't even know how to describe him. He's like 1950s cool. Actually, every Everyone in this movie is like 1950s cool, but Balthazar Getty is a like James Dean sort of figure. Yeah, I mean, all three of these films, and this is just kind of something that David Lynch just does is there's a sort of vague period sense but you're not quite sure when it takes place yeah this really could take place like any like they have cabs there's all this like noir aesthetics to the film and then it also has like vhs's vhs cameras and all that so it's kind of that's an interesting dissonance in the film you know i think like lost highway is a movie that is carried in part by having this very good soundtrack amongst other things it is a perfect late 90s alternative film. I mean, it's got like Marilyn Manson in it, Patricia Arquette's hair in the first Bill Pullman act. That dates the film quite a bit. It's like a movie for weird goth teens. Yeah, this is a weird goth teen movie, unquestionably. I think, like, with how the film is sort of structured, it's a very... Because the first 40 minutes or whatever, I actually... I don't have a firm grasp on it because, you know, I'm not pausing the film to, like, check the points in it. The first 40 minutes is kind of like, Bill Pullman kills his wife, and then the, like, next 90s, like, here is the fallout from that as he becomes this other guy and then becomes Bill Pullman again and then kills 
Charles, Dick Laurent, Flash, Mr. Eddie. All three of these films, I would say, this applies most to Inland Empire, if you ask me, are carried less by plot and more by just a strong emotional cohesiveness. Like, Inland Empire, I don't even know where to start with the plot of Inland Empire, but the emotions are just so strong that you almost get a sense of what is happening through the way the film makes you feel. That is the magic of Inland Empire to me. I'm jumping ahead two films in 10 years, but all three of these films kind of have that same sort of sense. And I guess that's why Lost Highway is the weakest for me because I sympathize more with a traumatized woman than I do a wife-killing guy, even if the movie is like, killing your wife is bad. Yeah, I would say, you know, controversial opinion. I concur with that sentiment. And I'm also not smart enough for Lost Highway. I say this like I'm smart enough for Inland Empire, but... I feel like Lost Highway, once you like strip away the kind of structure of it, it is actually a very simple film, narratively speaking. It's structured around this weird time loop thing, basically, where it's like the film both beginning and ending with Dick Laurent is dead, and this progression from one person to another. And that's not a knock inherently. I don't think films necessarily need to be like really complicated or something like that. Sometimes I just want to watch a movie without having to like pregame by reading Lacan. And I feel like you can mostly get away with it Lost Highway with just enjoying the sort of like noirishness of it. Enjoying the great soundtrack. What's your favorite song on the soundtrack, Dante? I'm curious. I like the Smashing Pumpkins song just because I really like the Smashing Pumpkins. I really like the Lou Reed cover of This Magic Moment. That's another really good bit in the movie. The David Bowie I'm Deranged opening sequence. It's such a good opening credit sequence. Say what you will about Lost Highway. Say what you will about how it's a misogynist mess and how it's two thumbs down Siskel and Ebert. But the opening opening sequence and the ending sequence with just the dark road. Oh yeah, I'm deranged just, oh. And the David Bowie song, that is phenomenal. It's really like setting you up for the kind of movie, and I feel like that's another thing that Lynch is really good at in a lot of his films, is having really good opening sequences. This might be a really stupid thing to talk about, but I think the beginning of Fire Walk With Me, where you just see the TV get smashed. I have only seen Fire Walk With Me once, and it's one of those films that I loved it, but it's it's like, I just thought, I'm never going to watch this again because it is just so unrelentingly brutal. I've seen it like four times, I should say. So is Inland Empire, mind you, but... I mean, they're all brutal in their own way. I feel like Lost Highway is actually the one that feels the nastiest to me, if that makes sense. Lost Highway feels the meanest out of the films. Inland Empire is fucked up, but it also feels kind of like the film knows that it's fucked up and it's showing you stuff and saying, isn't this fucked up? Whereas Lost Highway has that kind of 90s, Nine Inch Nails music video vibe to it. It's edgy. It's like, fuck you. It's like Shadow the Hedgehog ass film. Yeah, that's actually like a really, I think that gets at the distinction. I think that gets at why I don't like it as much. It feels like it has slightly less heart in it than something like Firewalk With Me or something like Inland Empire. I still think it's a very interesting film. Lost Highway is a film I think I enjoy thinking about and listening to the soundtrack more than I enjoy actually watching it. You gotta sit through a lot. Yeah. <laughs> 
You gotta like sit through a bunch of Balthazar Getty shit. Yeah, the Balthazar Getty shit where he's like, with Sheila, exceptionally weak to me. It's like television level crap. And I say this as someone who loves a lot of TV shows and it's not like David Lynch didn't make one of the best shows ever, but like this is like a late season two Twin Peaks thing, the whole Balthazar Getty and Sheila crap. Yeah, I was about to say it feels like a Twin Peaks filler arc. And I don't even mind some of the Twin Peaks filler arc stuff, so... The James shit with Evelyn in season two, that shit sucks so much. It's been ages since I've watched Twin Peaks. I was rewatching Twin Peaks this year, and I was groaning every time there was a scene that involved it. I do kind of think the, the bit out of the Balthazar Getty stuff that's good is the relationship with Mr. Eddie, and you get that scene where he threatens to kill someone for, like, tailgating him. Yeah, I mean, what's a David Lynch movie without one really violent guy who snaps? Yeah, who snaps for something kind of, like, trivial. I mean, he's no Frank Booth. It's no, like, Heineken, fuck that. Blue Velvet is so fucking good. Random aside. It's a really good movie. I don't think anyone would dispute you on that. Roger Ebert certainly would. That's a really hilariously bad Roger Ebert in my mind. Probably not that controversial of an opinion. But I think, like, Lost Highway, it feels like a movie that's on autopilot at points. That's maybe how I could explain my grievances with it. It's like, oh, this is a David Lynch movie. Of course this needs to happen. There needs to be the violent psychopath scene. There needs to be the weird sexuality stuff. But whereas Inland Empire and even Mulholland Drive, there are bits where I genuinely jaw agape watching them, you know? Oh my god. The entire last hour of Inland Empire is just... You have no idea what's going to happen. Whereas Lost Highway, I think part of it is that Lost Highway is just so structurally a film noir that, like, you kind of know what's going to happen when you're watching it. You're like, okay, these are the beats it has to follow. These people are going to have an affair. Da, 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 da. Mr. Eddie is going to try to kill him. Da, 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 da. There's the big confrontation bit. Then he discovers that she did porn. There's this choir of horror when he sees blue-tinted video of her having sex. It's being projected 24-7 in that guy's house. It's like, oh, sex is scary. That's kind of, that I think also leaves a sour taste in my mouth. I mean, this is a bit of an aside, but you've often talked about how Lynch is kind of a conservative filmmaker, and honestly, he kind of is. He's kind of like anti-sex. Yeah, there is like a consistent fear of sexuality in his films. And I don't think that's inherently always a negative quality. I think it produces a lot of things that are really interesting. But I think like I find it at its least compelling in something like Lost Highway. Because it's like, oh no, she's a sex worker. The horror. That feels kind of casually reactionary in a way that I'm not particularly happy about. And then the people could go, oh, it's actually reproducing his violent misogynistic worldview. Lynch doesn't think that it's like, I don't know. I think a lot of people will act like there's this very fine distinction between Lynch's characters and his views. And I think it's stupid to be like, oh, he endorses literally everything his characters do all the time. But points are being made in his films. I don't know. That's probably how I'd get at a distinction. I mean, people do like Twin Peaks, but Twin Peaks isn't so much anti-doing sex work because it's not just sex work that's Laura Palmer being fucked up. It's the trauma she's enduring while with Patricia Arquette, it's just like, she's having sex as her job, and isn't that terrible? 
Yeah, that's probably part of it. But I think another part of it is Twin Peaks, particularly Firewalk with Me, goes to really like great lengths to show that Laura Palmer is a human being. Whereas Patricia Arquette always feels like an idea more than a character in this film. That being said, she is great. She is really good in the film. And I think the problem is more the material she's working with is kind of caricature in a way that I don't think works fully. But she's great. I like Bill Pullman. I like a lot of the music. The facts about Robert Blake are really throwing me. I don't know how you didn't know that because that's like one of the biggest little trivia tidbits about the film is did you know Robert Blake was in an O.J. Simpson type situation and Lost Highway is David Lynch's interpretation of the real world O.J. type situation that happened to O.J. Simpson? It is really funny to imagine being in a room with David Lynch as he's watching the white Ford Bronco go down the highway and being like, I've got it. Got my next movie. Robert Blake also star of In Cold Blood, another film about murder. Come to think of it, a lot of movies are about murder. That's not very impressive. A lot of movies are about sex and murder and ideas and dreams and Lacan. Lost Highway is a land of contrasts, one could say. The sort of central theme to these films, if I were to pin it down, is Los Angeles is a world of contrasts. Yeah, like, they're all about... How fucked up is California? And specifically Los Angeles, obviously. Well, I mean, Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire are named after the real places, Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire. And being Canadian, when I was first finding out about these films, I had no clue those were real places in America because I've never been to Los Angeles. So it's like, I thought Mulholland Drive was just the Lynch film. And then my dad was like, oh, I went to California and we drove down Mulholland Drive. And I was like... So I guess what you're saying is if you're ever in LA for every reason, you're going to see the Mulholland Drive street sign, you're going to be like freaking out. You're going to be like, oh my god, is that a David Lynch reference? Yo, where's Winkies? I want to get a shit coffee and talk to a really creepy guy behind a dumpster. He doesn't really talk to him, though, you know. Where gets terrified by him. That scene is genuinely terrifying. Hot take. That scene fucks with me every time I see the film. It really works. And it's not all that scary when you kind of describe it. It's just like there's a weird looking guy behind a dumpster. Just the way it like plays out, it's like the scariest shit in the world. Even despite being parodied very famously in... Have you seen Connor O'Malley's YouTube video, jaywalking 2019 by any chance i have not there's a parody of that scene in mulholland drive and it's one of the funniest things i've ever seen in my life a classic of just like weird youtube comedy so i feel like anyone who's like oh this episode doesn't make a lot of sense you're kind of rambling about everything it's like what do you expect us to do with the david lynch episode those are literally what the david lynch movies are about david lynch is the perfect director to talk about on a podcast like this because his movies are just collections of emotions and feelings that are loosely connected to each other that make sense more as an emotional sense than as like a coherent plot. Yeah, the different movies are just like 10,000 layers of plot. Yeah, I think that one of the reasons why David Lynch may not be so much of a hit with like the boomer crowd is because they come into his films expecting answers while he is more interested in showing emotions as opposed to providing answers. 
I feel like a lot of the negative reception to something like Inland Empire is like, well, this is really confusing. Like, what's the deal with this? But it feels like an emotional thing more than anything else. I think there are lots to his films, though, and I think those can often be quite revealing and interesting. But it is true that that's not what he's particularly concerned with. He broadly in his films wants you to think about mood and atmosphere a lot of the time. Yeah, it's like, I don't care about Balthazar Getty. I don't care about this shit. I just want symbolism and stuff that makes me feel like I am dying and that makes me sad. And that's why Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire are so good. It's because of how sad and scary they are. I remember I was watching Mulholland Drive and just thinking, dear lord, this is the saddest and scariest movie ever made. And then I watched Inland Empire. I'd say the thing with Lost Highway, maybe the reason it doesn't work so well comparatively is because it feels so blotted. They're all very sad and scary movies in their own right. Lost Highway, I think we're both kind of a bit more lukewarm on. Dante likes it more than I do. I like the music a lot. I like cool white kid music. The music is good. There's some good music. To be fair, Inland Empire has a Beck song, so it's not entirely cool white kid music free. Mulholland Drive exclusively has cool white kid music from the 50s. Mulholland Drive. I guess that's our segue to Mulholland Drive. A movie that shouts out Ontario. It shouts out Ontario. Yeah, I was watching it and I was thrown off by that. Loki, I know I'm from Ontario, but I'm like from Ottawa, so I don't really care about smaller cities. So for all I know, David Lynch totally could have made up that city. I think it's a real place. I'm sure it is. And I'm sure the real life Betty comes from there and moved to California and met this strange woman in her house. And... Deep River is real. Got a population of 4,000. It's got a population of 3,099 and Betty. That's the population of Deepwater, Ontario. The very real person. It's literally 200 kilometers north of Ottawa, for the record. So it's closer to you than you might want to think. You could 100% go down there just for a joke. (laughs) It could happen to me. The Wikipedia page for Deep River does mention it as being named drug. Well, yeah, because what else is there other than the thing from Mulholland Drive? I suppose we should, like, summarize Mulholland Drive for, like, the five people who haven't seen it. One last thing about Deep River. Imagine, like, being from Deep River, you're watching Mulholland Drive, and you're like, Deep River mention. Hollywood's noticing us. We're on the map, folks. The Wikipedia page for Deep River, Ontario, has three notable people. One of them is a hockey player. Another one is, like, a film producer and writer. And the third is a serial killer, which is just average Ottawa small town. It's like the only notable people we have are like minor TV writers, hockey players, and serial killers. That's like every Canadian small town though, you know? It really is. If you go to like the Wikipedia page for any Canadian town, notable people, it's usually like six hockey players. Someone should edit the Wikipedia page for it and add like notable people, Betty, an actress. Actress, lesbian, except. Yeah, so Mulholland Drive is about an actress named Betty Alms who moves to Los Angeles to become an actress and she's staying at her aunt's house and she finds this brunette in the shower who's got like amnesia and some sort of an accident happened to her and they're trying to sort of solve the little mystery of her and a lot of stuff happens. Yeah, that's one way of putting it. A lot of stuff does in fact happen. 
over the course of the film. And maybe that shit I just talked about with Betty is all just in the head of a failed actress named Diane Selwyn. The very sort of primitive interpretation of the film is that Betty is sort of the naive vision that Diane Selwyn has. And then Diane Selwyn is the brutal reality of this jilted lover who tried to kill her ex-girlfriend and stuff. And it's sort of like repressed memories, Lacan. I don't know how much I buy that, to be quite honest. It does explain a lot of the film, but I feel like it actually, part of the reason I don't buy that is because there is no clear distinction, I would say, in the film between the dream world and the reality world. They're both kind of equally fucked up. A lot of it doesn't even really make sense as a dream from the perspective of Diane, because there's a lot of stuff that she is like not at all involved in that we see. Are we supposed to take all of that as projections of Diane? You ever have dreams where you're just a super like passive observer? I guess, but I think it kind of strains credibility a little bit. Where there's the true world and there's the dream world, whereas I think the film is about how there really is no true world in the first place. Everything is so jumbled and fucked up and weird, even in the fantasy universe, if one wants to call that, that Betty exists in. What I find so interesting about the film is how much of it is structured around questions of people not knowing their names. Obviously, you get Rita, who looks at a poster for the film Gilda and decides that her name is Rita. Mulholland Drive is a movie about being a girl with BPD. True. And then you have all these people who don't know who they are. It is basically a movie about identity and dreams. In my mind, another piece of evidence for the film not being cleanly dividable into like, this is the dream and this is Betty's real life is stuff like all the bits with Justin Thoreau's character and the affair. Yeah, because he's kind of his own guy that there are parts of the movies that totally like separate from Naomi Watts. So it's kind of hard to tell which is what? Yeah, that's why I'm a bit cynical about, oh, this is her dream and this is what's actually happening to her. She's a failed actress. I think Mulholland Drive. I like Mulholland Drive, but I like Inland Empire more. This whole episode is just me talking about how I like Inland Empire more than the other two movies, which that does feel like a very sort of late born, cinephile, contrarian, vulgar auteurism, Tony Scott is the better Scott brother ass opinion to have. If I can make an interpretive case for this film off top of my head, the sequence that I feel like is generally underrated in the discussion is how much the film is about lesbian sexuality. I do like the lesbians in Mulholland Drive. That's another very white boy opinion of me. And there's something really like genuine about their relationship either that I don't think you can write that off as just this is an idealistic dream of Diane Selwyn. It's a very tender relationship that it almost feels weird for a straight cis man to be portraying this in a way. Obviously it ends terribly, but the ways that they get to love each other, that is probably my favorite part of the film, the sort of initial meeting between Betty and Rita and how they get to know each other and watching them try to solve this mystery together and fall in love. I know it's a weird thing to like watch a David Lynch film and be 
like, yeah, I like the early plotty stuff, but I do like the early plotty stuff in Mulholland Drive a lot. I think that might be the best part of the film, which sounds contrarian, but in the realm of this weird psychoanalytic dream stuff, I just like Inland Empire more. What I like about Mulholland Drive is that there is a certain relative coherence to it that I don't think you have with Inland Empire. Yeah, that's why I like Inland Empire, because if I say, I don't know what the fuck is going on with this movie, I don't sound like a dumbass, because that's just how the movie is. Well, if I say, I don't know what the fuck is going on in Mulholland Drive, it's like, oh, maybe you were just really tired when you watched it. And it was like, yeah, I fucking was, because I had a busy day and didn't get the chance to start it until like 10 p.m. But I'd say with Mulholland Drive, I think the mistake is to read it as like, this is about dreams, and this is reality, and David Lynch is showing, whereas I think it's all dreams at the end of the day, because you can't explain a lot of them seeing the dead Diane Selwyn. It's all dreams, yeah. Yeah, that's why, oh, this part of the film is a dream. It's always this really lazy analytical device, because it's not entirely wrong, because yeah, like, everything that happens in a film is on some level arbitrary and chosen by a filmmaker to make particular, usually symbolic or narrative points, but like, that's all art. You haven't accomplished anything. You've just moved the goalposts slightly inward. It's a symbolic vision or whatever, but okay, what isn't a symbolic vision in this fucking film then the film works as the sort of dream world that really touches something incredibly raw and then it kind of collapses in on itself and i don't think we're meant to at the end go okay this is reality now justin Theroux and rita's real name that's the real world you know i don't think we're given enough to actually believe that i would say inland empire probably also serves as compelling evidence that you aren't supposed to read mahal and drive as this literal transmission of this is the real world and this isn't because trying to do that with inland empire is insane yeah i really do feel like inland empire and mulholland drive are both more about ideas than anything else and they have this sort of idea of hollywood as this glitzy machine that chews and spits out people and just leaves them utterly broken and i think that inland empire does that better and this episode is just going to go down as the one where dante won't shut up about how he loves Inland Empire more. <laughs> it's a good film, but I think the ending of Mulholland Drive, the one bit that actually really gets to me, which really probably shouldn't, is the bit where you see Diane's aunt and uncle walk under the door. The ending of Mulholland Drive is great. All three of these films have great endings. They're all these moments that just shock you to your core, and they just leave you thinking and feeling, but not knowing what the fuck just happened. At the ending of Mulholland Drive, you see Diane terrorized by everything that has happened. Silencio. Yeah, then you get the Silencio bit. The Club Silencio bit. That, I know for a fact, was used in a friend of mine's literary theory class. That scene was shown as an explanation of sign and signifier in structuralism. And it's a really good scene. There is no band. This is all a tape. And then you just get the singing and then she collapses on stage and is dragged off. And the music is still playing and everyone is just confused. The show must go on. That, to me, is a great, great, great scene. That might be the strongest scene in the movie for me, at least in the latter half of the film. The other thing that's really funny is there's that subplot in the film about that guy who's just trying to kill a bunch of people, where he's trying to hide the evidence and get the black book. And then we see that guy with Diane at the end in that conversation. I like the cowboy who just kind of shows up twice. The cowboy, if I show up once more, you'll have no problems or whatever he says. Also, fucking Billy Ray Cyrus is in the film. The most random fucking shit in the world is Billy Ray Cyrus and 
Omaha Drive. Post Achy Breaky Heart, Free Hannah Montana, Billy Ray Cyrus. Just like the film is a limbo period, it's a limbo period in Billy Ray Cyrus's career. Much to think about. Yeah, much to think about. It'd be really funny if someone could make the argument that it probably isn't the case that it at all jump-started Hannah Montana, but it'd be really funny if it did. That's probably not at all true, though, so. But yeah, Mahan Drive, it's about a lot of stuff. It's about Hollywood. It's about sexuality. And I think this is a film that has a much better view of sexuality, I guess, than Lost Highway. Like, this is one where there is tender romanticism and eroticism are possible. There's actual love going on because the anger in Mulholland Drive isn't so much that people have sex it's that we had sex but now we have different feelings towards each other there's the insinuation that at one point love was possible and the thing that sucks is that the love is over well in lost highway it's like patricia arquette has sex and i don't like that yeah that's probably a meaningful distinction i'm saying distinction a lot today i'm sorry i feel so flummoxed by all these movies in part because we just haven't done an episode in a while well yeah and we fucking chose the densest filmmaker possible to do a comeback episode on i don't know if it's the densest we could have done dense you know that's true it's the densest filmmaker people would actually listen to us talk about you know people are gonna tune in when we do the laura mulvey peter woolen episode that i'm threatening <laughs> you're gonna have to watch riddles of the sphinx don't you? you'll love it i'm sure i will we're kind of just circling the drain around the and drive for a little bit but i really like it it's fun i like it it's not my favorite we get it we fucking get it dante i get it the thing with Mahal and drive is that I don't even dislike it in any capacity. I think it's a fantastic fucking movie, but it's just, I like Inland Empire more, and that in and of itself makes me feel like a contrarian, just because Mulholland Drive is, like, so beloved. It's, like, the film of ever on sight and sound. It's, like, basically the only movie made in my lifetime that people think is good. Even my dad, who doesn't like Lynch, has said, like, Mulholland Drive isn't bad. Okay, fuck everything. We're talking Inland Empire. Empire now. You can go wild. Inland Empire. The plot of Inland Empire is... The thing with Inland Empire is that I have just so much love for this film as an emotional masterwork, but there's a part of it that does feel so impenetrable. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a David Lynch movie, and it's like a late career David Lynch movie, so you know that's really weird. I know people just talk about late career as this vague concept. It's like, oh, this is a late period Clint Eastwood movie. What makes Inland Empire interesting is basically all of the expectations of commercial appeal are gone. Yeah, it's truly just this bizarre conceptual experimental thing because this is what, 15 years post-peaks? David Lynch has long stopped being a commercially viable filmmaker, so it's just kind of out there. Yeah, he can just do whatever he wants. But it does almost feel like a thematic continuation of Twin Peaks. It feels to me like a thematic continuation of Twin Peaks, a thematic continuation of Mulholland Drive, but it's a logical extrapolation of the ending of Mulholland Drive made into a three-hour film. Yeah. It's also very much a precursor to a lot of the ideas he does in Twin Peaks The Return, which is the greatest television show ever made. I actually will say I think Twin Peaks The Return is better than Inland Empire if we want to be all argumentative. That's not a hot take at all. It's a hot take to you. It's a hot take to you. Okay, it's a hot take to me, but society as a whole treats Twin Peaks return as the only good thing that's happened to television in the past 15 or so years. And that's probably true. There's other TV I've enjoyed.
but like the return is just so good but okay inland empire to put it succinctly inland empire is about trauma well okay simplest explanation all these films have on the surface really straightforward plots inland empire it's about the making of a film it turns out to be a remake of a film in which the original stars were murdered and it's about the fact that the two stars of the remake played by laura turn who's nikki and dustin thoreau who's devon burke justin Thoreau's back. Basically what happens is they get kind of, I was about to say as the making of the film goes on, basically as soon as the film starts being made effectively, any kind of distinction between their characters and who they are kind of fades away. God, yeah. In London, I was just, this is such a cliche, but it's just a total mindfuck. It's a real mindfuck, but like there's also the stuff where there's a girl who's crying, who's watching all of the things we're watching. My interpretation about Inland Empire is that what it's communicating is basically the recollections of a deeply traumatized human being and how the memories and thoughts of someone who is so deeply traumatized are so fragmented and incoherent and that's almost what the movie plays out as just this total nightmare this total assault on the senses and just the sort of sense of you don't know what's going on but you have a vague picture of something horrible that happened yeah and you're kind of piecing together what happened you almost don't need to know the super specific details because the sort of image in your head of whatever exactly it was that happened just from the vague details that the film gives you that's almost enough information we don't really need to know anymore to figure out how horrific it is. It's such a difficult film to talk about because so much happens in it over the course of three hours. Here's what I'm gonna say about Inland Empire is Jeremy Irons is really really attractive in it. That's true. I think Jeremy Irons is generally an attractive yeah. He's a very good looking man and people are afraid to say that because he's homophobic, but I don't give a shit. Well, he's homophobic in a really weird way, really importantly. He's homophobic in a way that's so funny that you can't really get mad at it. The clip of him being like, oh, are people going to start marrying their dads for inheritance reasons? I can't get mad at that, even if it's abhorrent to say, because it's just no one would think that. That's the funniest possible reason to be opposed to gay marriage. Like, like, yeah, it's fine if two men love each other. I don't care about what God said, but has anyone thought of the taxes of all the reasons to be opposed to gay marriage? And just- The gears are turning. Men don't breed. <laughs> There's also just across the film, a lot of really famous actors who are in it for like barely any time. Like Terry Crews is in it. Harry Dean Stanton and Natasha Kinski are both in it in an epic little Paris, Texas reunion. William H. Macy is in it. Ian Abercrombie, Mr. Pitt from Seinfeld is in it. What is this cast? I don't even know how to just talk about this movie. You have so many different little self-contained dream sequences, basically, that all kind of fold in on each other. You have the bits where Laura Dern is talking to the guy who never says a word to her. When I went to see that film at the Review in Toronto about a year ago, people were laughing at it. The scene of her talking about, yeah, I was raped as a child. I endured a bunch of horrific sexual trauma and people are laughing at it. And I'm just thinking, what the fuck is wrong with you people? That's also why I've had several opportunities to to see Firewalk with me in a theater and I never have because it's just like I don't know if I want to endure people laughing at this 
If I can ask an interpretive question about those scenes to you, maybe I'm thinking about this entirely the wrong way. Are those supposed to be the backstory of Nikki or the backstory of the character Susan Blue? Or does it kind of just break down? I think it's the idea that when you undergo some horrific trauma like that, your identity almost breaks down and you separate the version of yourself that had the thing happen to the real you. So you almost imagine this is happening to someone else who is not me, but that also did happen to me. This is a movie I think about like that, even though it is ostensibly about actors and Hollywood. I feel like it's not quite about actors in Hollywood in the same way that Mulholland Drive is about actors in Hollywood. I feel like this more uses actors in Hollywood as a way to communicate that, if that makes any sense. So is it really about Hollywood? I mean, none of them are actually about Hollywood, really, except maybe Mulholland Drive. It is set in Hollywood. It's set in Hollywood, and there's a bunch of Hitchy references to cinema. Laura Herring chooses her name from a Gilda poster that has the name Rita Hayworth on it. The other thing is you get that sequence where Laura Dern gets stabbed. The Hollywood Boulevard scene in Inland Empire is just mind-bendingly amazing to me where she's wandering through the streets and she's just running into all these prostitutes and then she collapses and people tell her that she's dying and then these two street women have a surreal conversation in front of her and then that scene sort of slows down and then you just hear Jeremy Irons go cut and then that turns out to have been a scene in a movie but the scene is still following Laura Dern in real life and then she sort of wanders into the theater and just watches a previous scene in the movie just the images and that sequence of events just stays with me so so much more so than anything else in the film the last hour stays with me so much i can see people thinking that the first bits are kind of messy but for me that last hour is just so incredible the movie has a really good last act you kind of walk away from it thinking about that as opposed to the messy stuff in the beginning you know what i mean yeah i think one quality about all these films but specifically in Inland Empire is Lynch's attentive use of sound. Sound design in all his films is impeccable, but it reaches this level that he didn't really get at since Eraserhead of just these nightmarish ambient soundscapes, dilapidated industrialism, and like these echoes. It's scary even when like nothing's happening just because of the noises. I think that Inland Empire might be the scariest movie ever made. Name a scarier movie than Inland Empire. That's a difficult question, actually. I have the fucking podcast email. So go ahead and send me an email if you can think of a scarier movie than Inland Empire. That's a challenge to our viewers. And we'll watch it if you think it's scarier. Yeah, sure. That'd be a really funny Patreon episode. If someone sent us two or three. Two or three movies that are scarier than Inland Empire. Yeah, because I like genuinely can't think of some. It's not even really a horror film. I mean, it is. Horror is such a loosely defined concept because it can be anything from a movie about werewolves and vampires to whatever the fuck Inland Empire is. I would say a horror film is kind of a difficult concept. I don't know if it's a horror film, but it's a scary film. I don't scare easily when watching movies, despite... 
the way I've talked about these three movies, these are David Lynch movies that I am watching in a dark, cold basement at 12.30 in the morning, so obviously I'm going to be scared. But Inland Empire, I feel like even in daylight would drive me insane. I watched the first bit of it and then went to bed. I was deliriously tired, and halfway through the movie, I got kind of congested, and I took a decongestant, but I didn't realize it was the nighttime one, so I was basically fighting to stay awake while whatever fucking antihistamine was kicking in and I was just my mind was just melting I was like okay it's 2 30 in the morning I'm fucking going to bed well yeah because you tweeted now watching Inland Empire right as I was wrapping it up I could not start Inland Empire at 2 in the morning the reason I had to start it so late is entirely the fault of living in an open concept house this is the real reason if your kitchen and living room are so close if there's a dishwasher running you can't watch tv basically because it's so loud I don't know I would just watch it and assume the dishwasher was a part of the movie and I would get scared. So I was waiting for the dishwasher to finish before I put on the film. It was kind of stupid of me, but I also forgot it was like three hours long. I forgot Mulholland Drive was two and a half hours long, so I feel like we're a bit even. Mulholland Drive just zips by. Out of all the films I've watched for this podcast, it and like The Shining are the two that I'm like, didn't notice a thing. The Passage of Time, what is that? Actually, maybe a flush and walls. There's a bunch of other ones. I guess. Or Veronica Voss. Lushing one, Veronica Voss are normal length movies. Yeah, versus Inland Empire, which is three hours long. I get why it's a bit of a slog to some people, and I get why for some people it's just too out there. But I guess what I would say the most about Inland Empire is that it is so emotionally coherent that it almost doesn't have to have a coherent plot. You just feel so much of Laura Dern's pain that the specifics do not matter because when you're a deeply traumatized human being, your recollections aren't linear and they're all over the place. They jump around, they've got like rabbits in there. The idea of her watching herself on a screen, that's just a really powerful bit. You also get that weird reoccurring symbol that's the A, X, X, thing, N, N, and then like the line. What's up with that? I'm really not sure. I mean, to me, the film feels like a continuation of Firewalk With Me thematically and ideologically. Yeah, there definitely is like a through line there. With the ideology that being sexually assaulted as a child is a horrific traumatizing experience. I know that's not exactly like, and there is the argument that well why is a man so fixated on the suffering of women? But I feel like in Inland Empire it's almost so abstract that it stops feeling necessarily exploitative if that makes sense. Because it's really less about the assault itself and it's more about just the trauma that follows and that could in theory also apply to the trauma of war or having some other horrific shit happen to you. So it doesn't necessarily feel as fetishizing of women's pain as you could argue that, say, Twin Peaks is. That's an opinion. Dante literal Madoka Magica fan here being like, I don't know how I feel about depictions of women's pain. That might be why I like Inland Empire so much. It's because I was socialized on Madoka Magica. We will eventually do a Madoka Magica episode. I, I promise the listenership. It will kill both of us. We will absolutely do a Madoka Magica episode. It'll be really funny. If we want to talk about which David Lynch movie is thematically closer to Madoka Magica, which... 
I don't know how we got here. I feel like Mulholland Drive is the more obvious choice. There's a certain gay subtext in Madoka Magica. Oh, yeah, you think? You think there's gay shit in Madoka? It's gay shit and it's fucking time loops, which is also a thing in Mulholland Drive. It's like a thing in all three of these films. It's like Homura is going back in time to prevent Betty from... You know what I mean? You know, just write a fan fiction crossover between Madoka Magica and Mulholland Drive. I'm sure I could find that somewhere. I feel like someone at the very least has if not actually put in the time and effort to write something like that i'm sure the concept of that has crossed someone's mind because they do feel weirdly thematically similar and they're also kind of abstract and about time loops and about trauma that's the real thesis of this episode is that david lynch movies and madoka magica are also about trauma lots of films are about trauma it turns out some of them actually are and they're good i feel like it's about trauma is such a meme at this point that you kind of forget that art can be about trauma and it can be deeply affecting and then you watch something like Inland Empire and it just you start shaking like Kramer. Really important other thing is of course the most Lynchian thing to ever be created about Los Angeles horses the two-part Seinfeld episode The Trip. You've seen that? I've seen Seinfeld yes. But you know the episode where they go to Los Angeles? Yeah I've seen the whole show front to back. That's just like Mulholland Drive for real. That's just like Mulholland Drive for real. Yeah, Seinfeld episode Seinfeld finds a man in his shower. He finds George in the shower. There's some gay subtext to Seinfeld, as they acknowledge. George is also, like, a psychologically broken character. That's true. Also, there's an entire Seinfeld episode about them discussing the gay subtext of George and Jerry's relationship, so. The only thing I should say about Lynch, this is a weird thing, the way he can shoot a scene where you're like, whose perspective is this being shot from? As the camera just moves around. Lost Highway does this, Mulholland Drive does this, Inland Empire does this, and you're always just like, who is this? What am I watching? Who is this being pulled from? Because it feels like someone's being watched or whatever. I feel like the sort of failure that people go into Inland Empire is. At the point Inland Empire came out, I feel like people should have known what to expect from David Lynch in the sense that at this point in his career, he is just making really weird art. And I feel like it's a meme to say like, oh, it's weird, it's Lynchian, because people will call any shit Lynchian. But at a certain point, if you're a film critic and you're watching Inland Empire, and you're like, this doesn't make sense. Why doesn't it actually explain anything? You're just kind of a lost cause. I feel like watching Firewalk with me and expecting that is okay because his filmography at that point had been kind of semi-coherent. But at that point, like, you should have known that this is a sort of exploration of emotions and trauma more so than it is a coherent plot. You know, David Lynch, he's a good filmmaker. The quality of his that I really care for is just this reoccurring sense in his films that, like, who is this being pulled from? There's all the famous Twin Peaks staircase shot, you know? That kind of filmmaking. That, to me, is very Lynchian more than, like, things are a bit kooky, you know? David Foster Wallace discusses this in his essay about David Lynch, that Lynchian isn't just weird. It's a sort of very specific breaking down of the mundane and, like, lingering on it just long enough for you to realize how fucking insane it is. The whole Seinfeld Twin Peaks thing is kind of the meme, but there is a lot of shared DNA in the sort of ways that both shows are about how fundamentally bizarre human interaction is, about how it's weird to be a person, and how being a person is kind of like acting in a weird way. And that's what all these movies are about. That's what Lynch's whole shtick is. It's like, isn't it weird to be a human being living in the world? Being a person is just weird, broadly construed. 
rude. I think David Lynch understands that. I think also David Lynch's usage of Americana iconography-wise does kind of shift a little, it feels like, after Twin Peaks. It does. It becomes more sinister and dark. It's always kind of haunting, but when you look at Blue Velvet versus Mulholland Drive versus Inland Empire, there's a progressing sense of sorrow. There's nothing equivalent in Inland Empire to the opening bit of Blue Velvet where you see the nice, happy suburb. That doesn't exist. I mean, the whole point of Blue Velvet is that this happy suburb is fake because Dennis Hopper is in the basement doing weird shit while Dean Stockwell does his drag act. I think part of the point is that people like the suburb also. Unlike Mulholland Drive, which starts with like this idealism that like Inland Empire, there's not even any of that. Inland Empire just basically starts you off right after the first fucking studio canal watermark. It just plops you into this nightmare and like never really lets up. Mulholland Drive has all the bits that are like the 1950s sort of songs. and That sequence with 16 Reasons, maybe it's just because I saw this movie not too long ago. It kind of reminds me of the bit in The Conformist where the girl is singing. It's been a while since I've seen The Conformist. The Conformist is really good. That's another like definitely on the list. We got to talk about the world's least problematic filmmaker, Bernardo Bertolucci. <laughs> there are ways we could slice that cake and still talk about The Conformist. I like Bertolucci as the thing. We could just do a post-fascist Italian cinema episode. Or Why don't we just talk about The Passenger and pretend Last Tango in Paris never happened? Yeah. It feels weird to bring this up in a film where we're talking about like, yeah, Hollywood is evil. That's what these movies are about. Anyways, Bernardo Bertolucci. <laughs> really is for real. Hollywood really is evil. You hear about things like that happening and you think, yeah, you do go in expecting this big, idealistic, perfect future and you go in and you just get crushed dreams and trauma and sorrow and pain. There's no real redemption. There is a slight redemption, it feels like, in the ending, where she kisses the girl watching the television. It's like a sort of not necessarily happy ending, but it's almost an acceptance. And then there's a little dance party where there's like a lumberjack and Laura Haring's there. All of the girls, whose names all end in I, which I think is a funny contextual detail. One thing I will say about Inland Empire, there are two movies where someone uses the turn of phrase, in like Flynn, and... And one of them is Inland Empire, where one of the women pulls up her top and shows off her breasts and says, these bring him in like Flynn. And the other movie where they use that expression is Rainer Werner Fassbinder's 1978 film In a Year of Thirteen Moons, where anyone who knows the Gottfried John character's password, that being Bergen Belsen, is, quote, in like Flynn's. I always wonder, where does that come from? Because I don't know if Lynch is a Fassbinder fan. I I feel like he should know about Fassbender, but it's like... It's a very weird idiom. It's a reference to Errol Flynn, obviously. I wouldn't have figured that out. I don't have the same cultural understanding that Fassbender and Lynch seem to share. I had never heard someone say like, in like Flynn before watching the Inland Empire. It's such a strange scene, too. All of the stuff with all those women is just like the bit where they're all just dancing. How is Nikki interacting with these people? It sometimes seems like she doesn't exist, and then she does at other points and, oh. what can I say 
okay, it's just like a dream. It really did get me in the moment because like I assumed they were all talking to Nikki and then it's clear they're not. And that threw me for such a curve. And it was an interesting one. So, you know, good on the film. David Lynch can make some good movies, you know? David Lynch can make some good movies. He's also made some bad movies, unfortunately, but nobody's perfect. You're not rocking with Dune in 1984? It's not good. I'm sorry. I know people like want to good it's not i'm not even that crazy about like, elephant man uh i think kyle mclaughlin is cute in dune he's very hot and i'm not disputing that he's a very sexually attractive man that's the one reason i'm really excited for dune part two because you're gonna get the twink wrestling between austin butler and shamalai so that should be fun will it top the homoeroticism of the 1984 dude i actually do not know that we will have to wait and see inland empire it sure is a film no one can dispute that no one has ever disputed that, that puts us in a, an interesting place i guess hopefully we're not gonna make like david lynch and disappear for another 25 years but you never really know Don't know what life that I'm living